from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our New Testament reading comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to page 176 of the New Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the members of God's family who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God's our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anybody proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, let that one be accursed. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval, or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Luke. Luke is part of a group of high school students that are going to Montreat. They're all, many of them are sitting right here to join several other hundred uh, Presbyterian youth from around uh, the country for a week at Montreat uh, Camp and Conference Center. I hope you have a great time. Uh, and uh, the fellowship is enriching and uh, you're changed. I'd invite you uh, to join me now in prayer. Lord, break open uh, your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space, those who joined in on this remote broadcast and worship, that we would even be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's his name that we pray. Amen. Well, friends, if we were uh, to compile a, a list of, say, the most important letters ever to be written in the 246-year history of uh, the United States, what would we want to include on that list? Letters that have shaped our national consciousness, letters that have shaped our understanding of what it means to be an American citizen. What letters would make it on to that list? Perhaps we would include the 1783 resignation letter of George Washington, the letter that he sent to Congress, which set the precedent for presidential term limits and a peaceful transfer of power. Perhaps we'd want to include Abraham Lincoln's famous letter to a woman in Boston named Widow Bixby in 1864. At the time, it was believed that, that Miss Bixby had five sons that she lost uh, in the conflict between the states in the Civil War. And in his condolences, Lincoln penned words that have been reiterated, recited, and etched into our national consciousness when it comes to how we are called to remember the sacrifice that women 
and men in uniform have made and the sacrifice their families have made as well. In that famous letter, Lincoln wrote, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Perhaps we would also include a lesser-known letter from 1920 from a woman named Feb Byrne. She wrote it to her son, Harry, who was about 24 years old at the time. He also happened to be a representative from McMinn County, Tennessee, a leader in the Tennessee State House. The 19th Amendment guaranteeing women the right to vote was on the precipice. It was waiting for one more state to ratify it. And Harry Burns from McMinn County in Tennessee was the deciding vote. And leading up to the vote, he still had no idea how he would cast his ballot. And the day before he would do so, he got a letter in the mail from his mama. And in it, she celebrated the suffrage movement and urged him to vote in favor of ratifying the amendment, which, of course, he did. As an aside, I'm sure glad that he listened to his mom. As we grow the list of letters, we would certainly do well to include Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. On April 12, 1963, King was arrested along with others for his role in leading a peaceful and nonviolent uh, sit-in and protests and marches against racial segregation in that city. The same day he was arrested, there was an open letter published in the newspaper entitled A Call for Unity. And it was written by eight white clergymen in Birmingham, representing Reformed Judaism, representing the Baptists and the Episcopalians and the Methodists and the Presbyterians. They called for unity and for order to those who were leading the civil rights movement and to pursue their cause with a greater patience and give it more time to let it all play out in the court. They also critiqued outsiders, King included, for coming into their city for stirring up trouble. And in King's response four days later, he said in no uncertain terms that the greatest impediment to racial justice was not the KKK and it wasn't the white citizens council, but it was the white moderate who was more dedicated to order than to justice. And King's letter from a Birmingham jail pressed the urgency of the moment and the need for racial justice to happen now and not in due time. These are just four letters. Hundreds and hundreds of more could be added to this list of importance that have given shape and have have given rise to our sense of what it means to be an American has shaped the contours of our national identity as citizens. Each letter is more than just an artifact of history. It's more than just an artifact of of history. Each letter met a moment in time that now transcends time. And it gives shape to who we are as Americans. I begin this way because I believe in the canon of the New Testament the Christian has something very similar. The Christian has some letters too. We have epistles, correspondence that cannot be merely contained or categorized 
as historical artifacts. But more than that, they are the eminent content that gives shape to our understanding and our identity of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to proclaim the way Maya did just a few moments ago. What it means to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As we get into it, I think it's important to remember that the New Testament wasn't codified until the 4th century. So for the first 367 years, the first 367 years of the Christian movement, there was no New Testament as we know it today. I mean, just for perspective, 367 years is the difference between the year 2022 and the year 1655. I mean, just think about that for a second. For four centuries, this emerging movement called People of the Way, these Christ followers, these these Jesus followers, had no codified scripture. And they did okay. What they did have was an oral tradition. First and foremost, an oral tradition of the Jesus story. They got passed down from church to church, from family to family, and it spread throughout the ancient world. Eventually, writers would seek to to put accounts together of that story. The most predominant we know to be the ones in the New Testament canon, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. But the first gospel, which is Mark's gospel, was not written until sometime between 65 and 70 AD. So before the Gospels were written, they had an oral tradition, but they also had something else. They had letters. They had letters that we know about. They had letters that we didn't know about. And the predominance of the letters that we do know about were written by a man who went by Paul. He used to be called Saul. He became known as Paul, and he wrote to specific congregations and to specific contexts and moments in the ancient world. In a span of about 10 years, from A.D. 50 to A.D. 60, Paul wrote letters to the churches in Galatia, Thessalonica, Corinth, Philippi, and Rome. And these letters eventually spread beyond their initial audiences through uh, duplication and distribution. So it wasn't like the Romans just held on to their letter and the Philippians just held on to their letter. They were copied and they were, they were shared across churches. And what they accomplished in those early days and in the first four centuries of the church was the same thing that the letters that we referenced earlier about our, about our own nation and our, our nation's identity. It was doing the same thing. These letters were forming Christian identity. They were forming an understanding of what it means to say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, most scholars believe that Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, churches that were actually made up of both Jews and Gentiles, churches that Paul started on his first missionary journey, most scholars believe that this epistle is the oldest text of the New Testament. It's the oldest text of the New Testament. And the church that received this letter, the churches rather, would have been living in what we would call uh, modern Turkey today. That's where this Galatian region was. 
But he's writing to this particular church in a moment of crisis. And I'm going to say more about that in just a minute. But out of this moment of crisis, Paul offers the early church a clear and well-defined declaration of what the gospel is all about. What it is when we say the gospel of Jesus Christ after his resurrection, after his ascension, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the people of God. What is the gospel? What is the good news? What is the central message of the faith? And out of this crisis, Paul believes that he needs to offer this explanation. Now, we're going to get into it into the coming weeks, but, but one of my favorite New Testament scholars, a man by the name of Richard Hayes, actually summarizes Paul's response to the question, what is the gospel, in, in five points. First, when we ask the question, what is the gospel, what we are asking about is a word of good news that human beings are set in right relationship with God and with one another, not because of anything they have done, not even because of what they believe but because of what Christ has done and because what Christ believes. That we, because of him, have been adopted into the family of God. What is the gospel? The gospel, Paul says, is the declaration that through the cross of Jesus Christ, we are liberated from the power of fear and the power of death. What is the gospel? That God has poured out God's Holy Spirit on all who are in Christ, and that that spirit gives us life and animates us for God's good purposes in the world. As Paul will say later in his letter, to produce fruit, good fruit for the world. What is the gospel? That in this spirit-led community, the things that once separated people groups, people groups like the Jews and the Gentiles, the things that used to separate people have been totally and completely annihilated that there is no dividing wall of hostility anymore because what God is doing is creating a new humanity, a new people who, as he says, are one in Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel, friends, is freedom. It's freedom, not just to do whatever we want to do, but freedom to be faithful to the one who has set us free. See, what we have in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia is a word of clarity a word of discernment about the true nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the remainder of the summer, our preachers are going to take a deep dive into Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. We're going to read the entire letter across the course of our summer months. And today we begin with the first ten verses of the first chapter, the text that Luke read for us this morning. And this text gives us insight into the crisis that I referenced earlier that Paul was seeking to pastorally address. They needed to know something about letters in the ancient world, and I won't belabor this, but it's important to understand or to begin to scratch the, the surface of understanding of this crisis. In the ancient world, particularly in the Christian ancient world, uh, a letter would begin with three distinct points. The first would be an introduction of the letter writer. Paul does that. He says, I'm Paul, an apostle called by Jesus Christ. The second thing he would do, or an ancient writer would do, was say, uh, praise to God. They would give thanksgiving and, 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 and give glory to God, which Paul does as well. The third thing that you would typically see is a word, an expression of thanksgiving or gratitude for the recipients of the letter. 
So for example, in Philippians, Paul wrote, I thank my God every time I remember you. In Corinthians, he wrote, I give thanks to my God always for you. In Thessalonians, he wrote, we always give thanks to God for all of you. But in Galatians, there is no word of thanksgiving for the people receiving the letter. Now what you need to know is that that is an instantaneous tell that Paul is not happy. When he doesn't say he's thankful for you, pay attention because he's about to say something hard. It's kind of like the tell that your mom or your dad has or had when they, you know they caught you doing something wrong. The tell in my house was you need to go talk to your father. That's how I knew I was in trouble. The omission of Paul's gratitude for the recipients of this letter is a word of trouble and the Galatians would pay attention. There is a crisis at hand, and Paul frames the crisis in these words. There is another gospel being proclaimed in your midst. Now, what's interesting about this is that it's sort of a, it's sort of a conflict that is internal, because what's happened is, is missionaries from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, have now come to Galatia following Paul, and they're, in Paul's opinion, proclaiming a different gospel. This gospel was one that Peter proclaimed in the book of Acts. It was one that Jewish Christians were calling Gentile Christians to embrace, still using the language of Christ and Christian discipleship, but adding to it some supplements, some caveats, some strings attached. Yes, Christ has died for you. God, Christ has made you free, but now you need to follow all 613 laws of Moses. Now you have to observe all the feast days. Now you have to observe the Sabbath the way that we observe uh, the Sabbath. Now you have to be circumcised to be really a part of God's family. Additives, conditions, stipulations, strings attached. And apparently in Galatia, that other gospel was gaining traction. And that's why Paul wrote it this way. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one, meaning him, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul sees their acceptance of this different gospel, which, as he says, is no gospel at all, as a regression. There's a pastor and a scholar. Her name is Mary Hinkle Shore, and she has this wonderful modern-day analogy to what's happening in these opening verses in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. She calls to mind the experience of returning a rental car. Some of you have done this before. And you know when you pull into the rental car lot, you go over spikes that are facing the opposite direction. The spikes are pointing toward the parking lot so that if someone tries to steal a rental car from that lot, as they go over those spikes, it'll immediately pop the tires and they can't get the car any further. And you know when you're pulling into the rental car lot, there's a big sign that says, do not back up. Severe tire damage will happen. Mary Hinkle Shore says that's exactly what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia. Don't back up. Don't regress. Don't put it in reverse. Don't turn toward some other gospel. 
than the one gospel that I proclaim to you that this church and these churches were, were founded on. Because anytime the gospel, Paul's saying anytime the gospel is sprinkled with condition or stipulation or caveats or strings attached, it becomes da- dangerous. It becomes dangerous. The proclamation of these other missionaries had conditions and stipulations and burdens to bear. And Paul's saying that is dangerous. And ultimately what he's saying at the very outset is no. No. No, there is no other gospel. As I seek to sort of land the plane for this sermon this morning, I think we would do well to recover Paul's no to the churches in Galatia. No, there is no other gospel. And by we, when I say we would do well to recover Paul's no, I have a particular we in mind this morning. And it's going to be nuanced. And to be sure, it's complicated. But the we I'm thinking about this morning is not just the we as the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, but I'm thinking about the we that is made up of and called the Presbyterian Church USA, our denomination especially with our 225th General Assembly starting next week. Now, the PCUSA, our denomination, is the community I chose when I left the Roman church at age 19. I chose it principally, even as a 19-year-old, even though it wasn't mature or well-developed, I chose it for our theology, our polity, and our sense of what it means to be reformed and always reforming. Something that I took from our tradition and still take today, that we are never finished The Christian life does not have a conclusion. And therefore, we should work out our salvation and work out our faith in our life together with fear and trembling and with bold humility. And our tradition, a tradition I'm deeply committed to, helps me understand that call. I fear, however, that part of our denomination's decline in both membership and missional relevance is because we are being tempted to proclaim another gospel. There is no doubt that in our time, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been in danger of being polluted or co-opted by nationalism, by hyper-libertarianism, by by gun worship, by money worship, by white supremacy, just as much as it's in danger of being co-opted and polluted by Marxism, secularism, and hostile identity politics. But the answer to this pollution The answer to this co-option is not to preach a gospel that simply adds a different set of stipulations or a different set of prescriptions or conditions or attaches a different set of strings. It's not to preach a gospel that has very little distinction with secular liberalism and the ideology and the requirements of that ideology that are put on those who would prescribe to it. And I fear that's exactly what our denomination has had a tendency to do over the last three to four decades, creep toward this other gospel that has strings attached. Not only are we paying the price in the loss of membership and and missional relevance, but in falling woefully short of Christ's mandate to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. So here's my two cents, and I'll close with this. 
what we are experiencing today in our denomination and in many denominations across mainline traditions, what the Christian church is experiencing in the West in general, I think has some congruence with what took place in Galatia two millennia ago. You see, in the same way that these counter-missionaries to Paul said you must be circumcised <clears throat> and you must obey the law of Moses, these 613 commands, the other gospel that is so often proclaimed in our denomination and others says that unless you hold to certain beliefs or convictions, it's not really the gospel or you can't be a Christian. And in our own context, it would be things like having to call Israel an apartheid state or to divest entirely from companies who are dealing in fossil fuels or to fight to revoke the Second Amendment or to be only pro-choice. That's the only way that you can consider this difficult and challenging conversation around abortion or vote straight ticket Democrat. You can't really be a Christian or your gospel is not complete at least not in the PCUSA, unless you have these stipulations and these strings attached. This sermon will not end, I want to be clear on this, will not end by telling you what I think about these or any other pertinent and important issues facing us today. I still believe that God is the Lord of the conscience and that we need each other to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and with bold humility as we seek to follow Jesus in the world. The sermon will end, and it's about to. The sermon will end by challenging any presentation of the gospel that shrinks the table. And any presentation of the gospel that says you aren't a true Christian, you really aren't one of us unless your gospel includes this prescription or this condition or this stipulation or this mandate or this cause or this political position or this activity or this ideology. There is one gospel, and that gospel, friends, doesn't need our help. It doesn't need our help. It doesn't need our help to improve it or to make it more relevant or to make it more just, or to make it more prophetic, or to make it more peaceful or more righteous. And it certainly does not need our politics or our secular ideologies. It just needs someone to declare it the way that Paul did, to say, this is the gospel, and there is no other. Amen.